Welcome to Art in Motion podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Rico, and my pronouns are she, they. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode with visual artist and educator Trin Mai. We are back this week with part two of our conversation. Let's jump back on in. I'm curious then, within your works, you mentioned that some of the main themes that you go back to and incorporate within your work are these different topics of identity, specifically around um, the immigrant and refugee experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious how those experiences um, became so influential to your practice and something that you continue to meditate on and bring in and uh, tell stories about in all of these different ways. Yeah, so um, I I went to high school in Pleasanton, which was what it sounds like. <laughs> it's very pleasant. Uh, you know, lived in a pink house. <laughs> um, and they, our high school, I went to Foothill High School, and uh, there was a multicultural club. And I don't know. I, I was really excited about being excited about being Vietnamese. I think there were like maybe three of us <laughs> at that school. And um, I didn't experience any racism like in at this that I can remember or that I recognized or at least to my face. I don't remember high school being a pleasant experience, but but I don't remember it being <laughs> enjoyable, although <laughs> although in my old yearbook, I may have shared this with you, like there were all these notes about, Trin, I'll always remember your jokes. And I'm like, I told jokes? <laughs> I told jokes? I did? <laughs> um, but they had this multicultural club. They had just started and I was like super excited about being excited about being Vietnamese. <laughs> And um, there were three of us in it. <laughs> so maybe there were more than three Vietnamese, but there was just three of us and all girls. And, um, and we did like this traditional dance and things. Um, but that's when I first started asking more questions about my family history. Um, and it, it didn't really sink in though. I think it was just like, it might've been just like, so out of the ordinary, like, what do you mean y'all were on a boat floating like in the middle of the ocean and there were pirates? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, I don't understand. It, it just, maybe it was too fantastic or something or fantastical or, <laughs> um, but, um, at San Jose state, I worked with Rupert Garcia and he was like, what's your ethnicity, Vietnamese? How do you, how do you do, what do you consider yourself? Like Vietnamese American, how do you identify? Uh, and I'm like, no, just Vietnamese. <laughs> like I never, I never adopted the Vietnamese American because I thought it's obvious I live here. <laughs> so just mm-hmm. be, and even then, like, even when people ask me what my, you know, like how I identify, it's usually Vietnamese. Although 
I, when I write it, I have to, I write Vietnamese American specifically. So now I've kind of adopted it into like language, but, uh, or spoken language. Um, but, um, he was like, what do you know about your history? <laughs> I was like, not much. He was like, you figure that out and paint about it. And I wasn't ready. That was like in 2004, maybe. And then it wasn't until like a couple years later um, that my mom, I, I remember my parents being in bed watching TV. It was like a Saturday afternoon or something. And I sat on their bed and just asked questions and learned that, you know, my dad came over and worked, he was in the, the Navy, the South Vietnamese Navy, and then came over and worked at a candy factory. And my mom told me about like the escape. And I just could not, I was, I was older. So then I, I, and I was like seeking inspiration for more paintings. Right. And, um, and this was like after, I think it was after graduation, but I, I think it was at that point that I really, I recognized my privilege, you know, um, because I knew that there were no, there was like one Vietnamese person that I knew of in the BFA program in San Jose, like huge Vietnamese population, like the largest Vietnamese population contained in one city in the United States. There were like a few of us, but many of them were not, they were like in, you know, the engineering department, like other, not art. And I, uh, I just recognized like the privilege that I had because I know that there was a lot of pressure put on by their parents to, I mean, it's like, like understandably. So we come from war. We don't want you to suffer. We want you to have a good life, which means being financially stable to be able to provide for yourself and for your family for your children and then for us when we get older like I get that my parents didn't didn't adopt that same mentality they were just like can you just please finish school because I was such a mess I was (laughs) but I didn't want to go to college and they just were like you have to like that was like that was their have to just go to college do whatever you just be sure you graduate and they were supportive. And so extremely privileged to have parents that supported my work as long as I just did well in school and finished. And then to recognize like my love for art and like support that, um, you know, and then to just, I, I just needed to understand the history that they came from and the the war that they came from to better recognize my privilege. I know that about my childhood and about my life. I mean, I was an extremely difficult child, (laughs) very stubborn in my ways and put my parents through so much, uh, like rebellious spirit, such as are many artists, I assume. (laughs) I mean, like, uh, wanting to do your own thing, you know, like, don't not understanding the rules and not caring, (laughs) you know, going back to the, the immigrant refugee experience. It was, it was about wanting to understand my family history and then grounding myself in that and feeling more connected to my elders and to the ancestors and the way that they lived life simply, you know, I went back to Vietnam and 
2001 and then in 2000, uh, 1998 was the first time with my, with my family, with my parents and my little brother. And I, I just watched like women prepare for the market. Like days there start at like 4 a.m. Like at 4 a.m. you hear cars honking or maybe earlier. I remember it being four and they're out in the market and they're setting up their vegetables and their booths and they're selling vegetables on the street. And the mothers are there with their babies, you know, at their side selling vegetables. And I just thought it was so beautiful. Now from their perspective, they're poor and they're struggling, but from a privileged place, I'm like, that's how I should be living. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the, I would want that. I would want to be able to take my child to work, grow, use my hands and the elements to grow this crop to now offer it to the community and then just work, collaborate with earth. That That's where, uh, all of that kind of wove into me wanting to know like what the traditions are, you know, like how do they, they change and how are they altered when they're brought over here? Which traditions we keep alter a bit? Why do we keep them? Why do we change them? Yeah. And who, yeah. Like what stories we decide to pass on and what stories do we decide to keep quiet? Um, yeah. So like I'm taking these, like these materials that represent the tradition and then I'm introducing it in contemporary ways and contemporary meaning that I'm here in present. Right. So, um, so like the Kantang, the morning band that I introduce in the work, um, there's, multiple things like um I have a I have a film it's not a film reel well it is a film reel but it's from a VHS tape of my great grandmother's funeral that I found in the trash so this is like this (laughs) the trash yeah okay so I have an auntie who saves everything she she saves everything and then I have an auntie that throws away everything (laughs) (laughs) okay and I think about the way that we respond to war right okay so Ken's family his father like fought in the war like was imprisoned for years in the re-education camp and so when they arrived in America without made at them um well as as often as in vietnam i should add um <laughs> uh he was like we're free <laughs> like we're not we're not living in this anymore so they were given so much freedom uh, mm-hmm. because life here in america was like like this was this was the goal to escape that war they made it And here they are. And so they were given complete freedom because compared to that, like they're, they were safe now. Right. Like they, they, they found refuge. Yeah. They were no longer in war. (laughs) Yes. So, so my parents lived through that same war. Um, Not my, my father was in the Navy, but he wasn't in hand-to-hand combat. They escaped 
Their goal also was to escape the war. We come here and they, they like kept me so sheltered to protect me. <laughs> totally different ways of responding to Mm -hmm. war. Okay. So I, my auntie, and I think about that, like when they escaped, they had to leave everything they knew, all of their belongings behind besides each little backpack that my grandma sewed for the children to bring clothes and a little bit of food. So one auntie saves everything. And this is just me trying to make sense of it. Like, I don't know. I'm not like a psychologist, but I'm just thinking to lose everything. Like, what is, you know, what does that mean to lose everything? And then when you lose everything, how does it, how does it affect how you um, take care of your belongings or how you view material things? Right. Um, So one of them saves everything. The other throws away everything. Like mm. minimalist, total minimalist. Um, so that's very interesting. Again, two very different ways of um, of responding. So we were cleaning out my grandmother's garage, and I found this VHS tape that had been like smashed and thrown in the garbage. And I looked at the label and it's, I still have the labels like handwritten and it's my Mako's great grandmother's. It's a VHS tape of her funeral. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what in the world? Like how painful is that to lose something and then to, to like destroy this, like, documentation of history because of for whatever reason right yeah and I at first I was like offended by it you know and then I thought is somebody really gonna watch this tape though (laughs) right yeah that is that's true is it is it serving more as like an archival piece of history or is it something that is going to bring sadness and they would rather remember her in other ways. Yes. So I pulled it out of the trash naturally. (laughs) (laughs) And I have these rolls, like just the reels from the inside of the tape. And I don't know what to do with them, but there's something here. And so I've been asked, are you going to like, record it because I mean that would be interesting to see who's in the you know who's in it but then we also have photos of her funeral too so I'm trying to figure out what to do with this tape but it's like so see there's like the history of this thing right so this is the the ceremony to mourn and celebrate mourn the death of and celebrate the life of a matriarch Mm -hmm. and then all the stories that come with it how I found the tape what the situation was how I'm making sense of why this this seemingly precious thing would be destroyed and so all of that comes with it right like the collecting of the material is a story in itself 
when it comes to us. Yeah, it's, it's had its own history. Yeah, that's usually how the process is. I just, there's something that needs to be done about this, right? If it's not going to be shown on a, in a VH, on a TV, on a screen, through a VHS tape, maybe it needs to be shown elsewhere. And maybe the showing of it isn't the moving images that it's meant to show. Maybe the showing of it is sharing the material and telling the story like we're doing right now. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I mean, that's that is so interesting to me, especially um, as an artist who works mostly with lens based media and the recording Mm -hmm. of like that raw documentary style footage, most typically. Um, And something that I think to myself as well is, you know, what there are always those moments where I tell myself, like, this is not a time to record. This is not a time that this, this is not the important time. Like the important time is something else or that I just need to be in that moment. Mm. And so it's, it's interesting to me to think of, and what I also do at times with my own practice is like this found footage or found images, like what are the lives that I want this to lead to live that tells us more about just this snapshot that we see. And yeah, I, I think that that is really powerful of, you know, what will this footage be and how might you incorporate it into one of your pieces with like the transparency and the layering that you oftentimes use, but to make such a a more in-depth story than just this one moment. Yeah. And, you know, that layering too. I mean, we, we are forced to look at the world through our lens. Really. There's yes. no, we, can't, we try, we try to understand other people's stories, right? Like we want to, but it's really not possible to fully understand what that contains. We can try to understand what those who are, there are forces that are threatening these refugees, right? Like they're ordered for deportation. They're detained and just waiting any day now, any moment, any hour now. And we can feel for them, but we that don't aren't going through it. We don't know what it's like to sit and wait (laughs) like we we can only see it through our own lens yeah and so how do we get closer to that right like how do we how do we get closer to that (laughs) yeah to be able to allow ourselves or well first to recognize that we don't know and then Mm -hmm. to try to open ourselves up for what that might entail, or at least like um, having more empathy for, for those who are going through that. Yeah. And how do we, how do we engage people in doing that? Right. Like we nurture relationships, like unlikely relationships sometimes 
so that we can have the conversations and so that we can build that trust so that we can tell the stories that they might see something they haven't seen before and that make we might see something we've never seen before in them and understand each other better. That's really important to do. And it's very difficult to do. And that's why nobody wants to, I shouldn't say nobody, but many people choose not to do it. I don't want to sit across the table from somebody who has such different views of life and that I do, you know, like it's that's hard. not, yeah, no, that's not my preference because why? I know that there is a risk of, you know, confrontation, argument, anger. I don't want to make any room in my heart for anger. I'm, anger tires me out. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't want that. So how do we approach that, right? Like we have to go into it actually wanting to, to learn about the other person. Like, why do you think the way you do? How is it possible? And those are okay. Those questions are fine. How is it possible that you believe this? And they're thinking the same thing about me. How is it possible? Well, can I share with you why I think it's possible? Can I share with you the story that influences the way I think through personal experience, not media. We're not talking about like what media has told me. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about what we've lived through and lived through with other people and in our own lives. And these are real stories about real human beings and real suffering. And that's why I believe what I believe. And that's why I recognize it as truth because it is, we're living it. So now those stories change more minds and people, and not maybe not totally, but maybe it's, it plants a seed, right? And then someone else will come and water that seed, or maybe we water that seed. It's like scripture talks about that. Like one sows the seed, another waters, and God gives the increase, right? Like I'm a believer, so I'm just mm-hmm. God's name. Um, and I and I believe that to be true. And I've watched it happen in people that are totally unwilling to change or consider even a different way of thinking. And then a story is shared and all of a sudden they realized, oh shoot, I'm your ally. And it's like amazing. Like there's no, there's just like, you can't just change people's minds from facts or from like beating them with a mallet and like, and we want to, like we're beating our fists on the table. Like, why can't you understand? This is, you know, like that's what we are, in our impatience as human beings, that's what we want to do, but that's not going to, that's not necessarily what does it. Right. It's like that one, like an anecdote about like how there's this man that's like someone's walking down the street and they're like clinging onto their coat and like the wind is blowing to try to get him to take off that coat. And he just like the harder the wind blows, the tighter he holds onto that, that coat. And then the sun comes out in beams and he just willingly takes off that coat. It's Mm -hmm. like, that's the armor that we're talking about. People come to these conversations with their armor on and swords drawn. We know that about ourselves. Yeah. But there's a way to approach it. And it takes a person that we believe is the adversary, right? Like, and just out of love, wanting to come to the truth. (laughs) 
Like, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about getting to the truth of the matter, right? Yeah, well, com- coming to these conversations or these hard topics with a place of love, like you were saying, and with that goal of, you know, finding the truth and finding the humanity within each other. And I think that that is what's so powerful about storytelling and using art as that that practice is if, if you're coming with to your work with that genuineness and love and respect to your work, which I know that you are so thoughtful and, and do in all of your practice, that people can see that and connect to that, even if, you know, they're coming from different perspectives to start to open up their eyes and at least like understand more about other people. It's like our goal, right? My goal is not to I'll speak for myself, but it's not to change people's minds as much as, as it's to ask them to consider something else. Mm-hmm. That's because I don't want, I don't, I, it's like, who am I to take on the responsibility of trying to change someone else's worldview? That's not what I'm here to, that's totally, and I think it's arrogant of us to assume that we have that power to do that in, in the ways that we are susceptible in trying to do that. Like holding, grabbing someone by the shoulders and shaking them. Like in my mind, that's what I see myself doing sometimes. (laughs) That's not what I'm going to do. You know, like I got to just like, look, these people, they're just raised differently. They come from different places. I feel like it just puts too much pressure on ourselves. So it's like, what helps me is to ask like, how can I offer this, this true story that might sow a seed rather than how can I change someone's mind? That's not my, that's not my job. My job is to offer it in the work, in the stories. These are real things that happen and now it exists in a material form offered to the community to consider. And then whatever that they do, the viewer can take it in. That's the beauty of art and the value of it, right? They can take it in however they want. And that's their choice. That's going to be dictated by their own life experiences. And I just, I like that idea. I like the idea of releasing myself from that huge responsibility that I have. It's like, again, our human issue of wanting to control everything. <laughs> yes. I, I was going to say, I really love that. And I am going to try my best to take on that philosophy. <laughs> girl, tell me how you do. And then give me some notes, <laughs> please. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, we, we, I, I will speak for myself. I make work with the intention of hopefully, um, documenting certain things or like getting a a specific idea out into the world. And that is definitely one of the things that holds me up in that process is just overthinking of, well, how is it going to be perceived? And, you know, we talked about that a bit earlier too, but yeah, that's one of the things I'm currently working on is trying to let go and just say, no, go with the intuition and 
what resonates and what feels good and let the viewer take what they will because I have no control. <laughs> yeah. And I understand that you, you, we think about how it might be perceived because we care about the work. Mm-hmm. Like we, care, we, we, that's totally understandable. I think the way that I approach everything, like whether it's like talking art or teaching or whatever, it's less like, let me show you this lesson. It's more like, Hey, I just discovered some really cool stuff in the studio and these ideas that I'm trying to figure out and I'm going to share them with you. And what I'm hoping is that, cause you know, someone will come to your work. I'm sure you've experienced this and they'll be like, this reminds me of this. And you're like, Oh shoot, that totally added an important layer to the work that I didn't even realize was there. Thank mm-hmm. you. You know? So it's like, this is a collaboration happening. And then pretty soon part of their insight goes into a statement that I'm scribbling down in my sketchbook because it makes so much sense. And it's so profound that goes back to like, how much credit can we really take for our work? The offering of it, you know, of these ideas and of these discoveries, it just makes it, it just takes that burden away from us. Like how will people be perceive it? Because part of the beauty in showing the work and in sharing the work is to see how people perceive it. Right. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes. And it might come from somewhere totally different. And it's like fascinating because now all of a sudden the work just became a portal into someone else's mind. That <laughs> a stranger that you just met is now like sharing life stories. And it's like, whoa, yes, yeah. more of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that that is so lovely when you're able to put something out and then just have a person open up and expand and tell us uh, what their relation or connection. And it was something that you would have never dreamed of, but, you know, you can see it and recognize that, you know, your piece did have that impact and that power to resonate with that person and do work outside of what you maybe even intended for it, which is part of the magic. And I think even more profound or possibly more profound than that is that a stranger can offer insight into your own work. Mm. (laughs) That is amazing. (laughs) You have somebody who has no idea who you are, never spoken to you, maybe has never seen your work, comes up to your work, you stand with that person and they're offering me insight into my soul. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> like, yes, please. Some, some free therapy. Yes. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing. It's like, that's why it's like, when we talk about art education, it's like, who's, you know, and I understand like, we put in the time and we organize things and we, you know, like we curate our lesson plan and, you know, all of this. And we put the work into it in order to facilitate these whatever's talks or workshops or classes or courses, whatever. And it's like, I, I hear teachers say all the time who really mean it. I learned so much more from the students than I think they learned from me. They could argue, they might argue otherwise. But that's the whole thing of like, 
again with the labels mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a hard time. Like art education is like really who's educating who here like we're all just kind of like art education is the process of transferring and sharing all of this information and sometimes that information comes off in a form of a question someone's inquiry about something specific right like mm-hmm. that lead that just broadens the education yes right so again like going back to it's not necessarily about like being right or wrong in our, you know, work and art is not right or wrong, right? Like it's not, that's what, that's why we love it so much because we can kind of teeter and then Mm -hmm. figure out, oh shoot, these things that I thought would work doesn't like, yeah, acrylic on oil, not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's not, that's not going to work well, but I, yeah, there's, there's, it's about like coming to the truth, right? Is that what we value? What is it that we value? Right. And is it the truth? And if it's the truth, then what do we do to kind of move in that direction together? Right. And if there's somebody who doesn't want the truth and there's somebody that does, that's going to be an issue. There's the conflict. But if two people from seemingly like opposing, you know, sides or whatever, like want to find truth, then there's a really good possibility that if that's the goal, right, there's a good possibility that it's going to be a very progressive conversation and hopefully resolution, whatever that might be. I I know a lot of your practice um, is working with community and that you've done a lot of socially engaged community work. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences. Maybe that also comes back to the the teaching and learning more from the people that you are supposed to, quote unquote, be teaching. Um, But how did you get started in doing that socially engaged work? And um, how do you feel like it's influenced your your practice or your activism or your just general life overall? Yeah, I didn't even realize that I was like engaging I, I mean it's like it's funny because when I first learned about social practice I was like oh shoot that's a thing right like <laughs> yeah, right is like that's that's what we should be doing anyway serving our community in whatever ways we can with whatever gifts we have as capable whatever capabilities we have right like so I think it was when I started teaching the elders um through the Bowers, it was, it started off being like how to, right? So it was like how to paint a portrait. We really focused on portraiture because my goal was to help them tell their stories. So a lot of self-portraiture. And then the more work they would, the the more invested they became in the work, because we would work on like an eight by 20 um, surface. And so they spent, they would spend like a couple of weeks on it. And then it got to the point where they were finishing it in a week because they were so excited. They bring it home and finish and they'd be like, what are we doing next? And I'm like, oh my goodness, this was, this was the last like two months. Um, yeah, but they would paint their self-portraits and then they would start telling their stories. And then some of the elders would paint themselves in like war as soldiers with like helicopters overhead, like throwing bombs and they wouldn't talk about it, but they would paint about it. Oh my God. Wow. I had to keep this going. And so that kind of goes back to what we were saying about like 
being careful about not, you know, like, or fearful, not being careful. We should be careful, but being fearful about encouraging people to deal with trauma, right? But people will do it in their own time and in their own way. And with art, the color kind of masks that, right? Not, I don't want to say masks. It softens it, mm-hmm. right? When I'm painting a bird that might be lifeless, I'm lost in the paint. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this bird and what he or she or, you know, has been through, but I know that it's suffering and I, and I have that in the back. It's already in the back of my head, but I get lost in the paint and it makes it easier to handle. Mm-hmm. The, the beauty or the tactileness of it or the process is easy to get lost. Yeah. yeah the rendering, right? So if I'm painting a bird and I want it to be, there's like these formal decisions, right? So we're talking about like color and value and line and space where it sits in the space and volume and the composition or whatever it is. There's all those formal decisions that kind of happen when creating a drawing or a painting. And so I am rendering possible death. And I say possible because I thought it was dead, but then I painted the eye and then I realized it wasn't dead. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. God, I really did not want to paint another. <laughs> no more dead birds. <laughs> um, so in the paint, they would get lost in the paint and they were colorful paintings of war because why fire burns bright and in the trees, like the green of the trees and the, they're just, so that's, I think that's where um, it began, where I was like, there's something here. Before that, I was making work about my, when I started making work about my family history, they would, when they'd see themselves in the work, they would tell stories. And so this kind of was a continuation of that. And Mm. then that, I worked with the elders for maybe, maybe four or five, gosh, I don't know. Um, but then it became kind of like free format. So they already knew how to render the figure now at this point. We started off with like a little, I think it was like a little over 20 students. And we ended up within like a year, there were like 70 students. Oh, wow. To the point where they were creating their own committees within the class. So they made like they brand branded themselves. <laughs> logo. It was called look um, um, the elders like art art draw senior senior art class, and so it was. It started off being just like visual art, painting and drawing, and then they started breaking off into like subcommittees. So within this class, they had like a dance group. They had a singing, a choir group. They had a, um, it was line dancing, by the way. <laughs> They're amazing. And then they had like, they, they would call me up and be like, yeah, we're renting a, like a, a boat and we're going <laughs> to go into the water and paint all day. Want to come? And I'm like, you guys are so much cooler than I am. <laughs> That's awesome. They really embrace this. And so that's where the community work started. It was just all, again, these are the things that I figured out in the studio and I just want to share it with y'all. We can tell our stories. Want to join me? Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of took off. And that's where 
that's really how it began was seeing like, oh my goodness, yes, the need for art. Like I, I know it's a need in my life. And I can say like with confidence that it that everybody's life would be enriched if there was more art and color in their lives. Uh, you know, and for the people who don't feel that way, um, I feel like some of that can also be, come from fear, like the fear of not understanding art, the fear of not understanding. Um, I, I only know the artists I know. And then like the Bay Area figurative artists, <laughs> like whatever I studied, like in school mm-hmm. and then like the artists I know. <laughs> so bad but it's like there's this fear right and it's like if people would just recognize that like arts to be experienced in whatever way that you will that's like that's enough you know it's it's not I don't know I um but anyway yeah that's like that's how the the community engaging work happened started happening was that and I didn't know it was happening um, I just knew that it was important. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard about social practice, I was like, oh, shoot, this is a thing. This whole art practice melded into community engagement slash community service because it is a service. Mm-hmm. Um, this is now, this now holds the label of social practice. Uh, yeah. So that's how it began is working with the elders and like gleaning from the history and then watching them grow in the work and connecting with them through that way. It was just like such a gift, such a gift to the elders. Oh my goodness. It sounds like such a beautiful experience, especially seeing how it was able to grow and develop and become their own (laughs) community and thing. And yeah, I, I think that that is so true. What you're saying of like, that that for people who maybe don't have that relationship with art, there's that deep fear. I know even for myself, it's like, oh, am I going to look silly? Is this going to be, this is going to be bad, whatever bad means. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably look silly. We'll probably look silly. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's also like, yeah, but you can look silly and it can bring you the utmost amount of joy and pleasure and happiness. And that is worth looking silly for, you know, what does it matter to look silly? Silliness is where that, like, that's where we break our need to like be like this refined quote, right? Like Mm -hmm. blind being in society. It's like, seriously, like that silliness is the, the, the willingness to let go of how people will view us. And that is liberating. Yes. And yes, we might look silly, but oh, well, I laugh at myself and I I really enjoy laughing at myself (laughs) because it makes me feel like, it's like sharing an inside joke with somebody, except it's with yourself, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is what you do. And it's just so funny that I'm like dressed up, squatting in the dirt and laughing because there's like people coming out of the opening and they're like in this area. And, I'm, and of course, that goes through my head. Like, what are people thinking right now? And on top of that, I had because I always carry trash bags and gloves with me just because just in case, you know, you never know. <laughs> 
And I had this plastic bag like stuffed in my pocket, flapping in the wind, <laughs> filled with things. And in my other hand, like all of this like burnt bark, you know, and it's like, yeah, we will look silly, but it's so worth it because it's part of the work. It's like, it's funny because um, I had spoken with an artist a while back and they were like, everything we do is performative, you know? And I thought, huh, I never thought about it that way, right? It's part of the practice, right? Mm-hmm. The collecting of it is performative. And if people see you, that all of a sudden becomes a performance, right? It's like a, it's an act, the act of um, gathering material or, you know, even like your teaching, that's performative. You're standing in front of an audience, you're sharing the knowledge that you've acquired and you're expecting a reaction. It's totally performative. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's fun when we get to be silly, like in that performance, maybe it's just on our own, but it's still counts like it's still important so I want to see your silly work (laughs) you told me a little bit about it um I mean I regularly talk about random things in my classroom blues clues was a hot topic of discussion last semester (laughs) but yeah I, I think we're just you know taking ourselves less seriously and recognizing like I'm doing this because it makes me feel good or it brings me joy or it's part of my practice or it's just a part of my life that I exist with. (laughs) And yeah, letting, letting those guards down to be the most authentic version of yourself. Yeah. It's funny how we aim for like the ideal version of ourselves, right? Like, so it's like the ideal is the perfect and we aim for the perfect. And so then we try to do the things that we deem will make us perfect, which is impossible because we are not. And so that wrestling with being the, being and making the best we can with what we have and who we are right now at this moment, because that'll shift. And, and then recognizing at the same time how imperfect we are as we are aiming for the perfect. It's like, yes. what are we doing again? <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite mantras that I've been repeating to myself all of this past year throughout the pandemic has been perfection is an illusion. Mm-hmm. And just remembering that and embracing that And not to say that, you know, that is making me try less hard or anything, but just to let go of that element of this ideal and this perfect and know that that never existed anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And ideal to whom, right? Ideal Mm -hmm. to whom. And I think like the ideal, that's why I kind of like bring it back to like the ideal is the truth, right? And where do we hold that truth? And is that what we're aiming for? That's what I, I mean, I have a, I have a quote that says, what is the truth and how many ways can I proclaim the truth? I love that. But what is it first? We have to figure out what that is, right? Mm -hmm. What is that? And there's so many ways to do that. But what is like the most effective way for us to where, like, how much do we believe in the thing that we're making to invest 
all everything into it, regardless of what other people or how other people will respond. Right. But yeah, like that's the perfection to me is the truth. That's Mm -hmm. the, the goal. So perfection yeah, it for me it does exist. I just know that I'm not it. <laughs> I just know that it is not a. Uh, it's a discouraging ambition to have um, because it's just not. It just cannot be achieved by us. <laughs> yeah, just. On these notes of you know the idea of ideals and perfection and them not really existing or existing in truth. Um, I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up on. So I um, just want to say thank you so much for coming onto our podcast and having this wonderful conversation. I am curious, um, what advice do you have for either your younger self or other creatives who are coming out right now um, about anything? Um, for the younger folks, um, and well, they, I would give myself the same, my younger self, the same advice. <sighs> Don't get caught up in the hype seriously because that's what it is you are not perfect but it's good to to aim towards an ideal look at yourself for who you are truly um, and recognize beauty and fault so that you know we can well actually this is advice for myself now too so it's like (laughs) um And I think it's important to like not dwell on our shortcomings, but recognize them because that's how we are going to overcome them. And it also humbles ourselves. I think one of the issues I see in this world is the need to just more consistently focus on the positive things than on the negative things because those negative things hurt. I understand that. We don't want to, we don't want to confront our issues, right? We don't want to confront our faults. We don't want to see our the our potential to be hurtful and ugly to people, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it's important to recognize that just as much. It's just kind of like it's like making art that confronts these very these horrendous humanitarian crimes. Um, but at the same time, looking for beauty that can come from it, like togetherness and like standing together with our neighbors and our loved ones um, against these acts. I liken it unto that. So it's like recognizing this within ourselves, like recognizing our potential, but also really being being honest in seeing how faulty we are so that we can either change that like make small changes to like be better um but also humble ourselves in that way or else the world's going to humble us for us and that sucks Mm. (laughs) that's that's horrible to have someone else or some other circumstance humble you it's like rather us humble ourselves 
and and when we recognize our yeah our shortcomings and some people call it shadows it can do that for us and then we can approach our work with um just honesty you know that would be my advice (laughs) thank you i'm gonna take that advice too that was wonderful advice and you know and of course like on the other hand like recognizing the beauty that we have and the uniqueness like we are each such valuable creatures in this life and only you can do the work that you can do nobody can do the work that you're here to do it can they can emulate they can try to take credit they can you know whatever it is but the work that comes from your hands only you can do because your heart is different than everybody else's heart and your experiences and i just really want to encourage people to remember that like of in all ages but you know especially the youth because i feel like in this age there we are bombarded by so many lies about what we should be how we should think what we should look like how we should you know behave what makes us more likable what makes us more beautiful what makes us more successful or look more successful that's a thing it's mm. like if that's the lie, this will make you look more successful. You want to talk about not if, even be successful, just yeah. look. <laughs> yeah. And then like, ask yourself, what is your, what is your idea of success and how will that make for a fulfilling life? And what are the risks in doing that? Yeah. And then time, the most valuable thing we have in this life is time because mm. everything is encapsulated within that. Right. So like family, you know, like Mm -hmm. our passions, our creativity, it's all encapsulated within this time. How are we using our time? And there's a quote, it's like the value of your life is defined by what you spend your time doing or something like that. Dang, that was like horrible. Sorry, I can't remember. (laughs) But it's like, that that's the value that we have for our life is what we spend our time doing. It's like, it's true. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so how are we spending that time and how is that fostering our wellness? Yeah. I mean, time is the ultimate resource and we have to decide how we are going to utilize our limited time that we have. None of us know how long that'll be. And making sure that we're utilizing that time in a way that lines up with our values and hopefully helps us to be, you know, our most whole selves. And then how, okay. So in that time, right. In the way that we spend our time with what heart are we spending that time? If we're fighting for the underprivileged, right. If we're fighting for the poor, if we're fighting for the oppressed, with what heart are we fighting for them? Like, are we doing it out of love? Are we doing it out of anger? Are we doing it out of hate for the other? That is, you know, like, and how is that going to be conducive to the fight, right? So this is a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. It's one of my, (laughs) okay. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. 
power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. That just made me think about like, you know, with what heart are we spending this time? So yes, it's, that's, that is a beautiful quote that I think encapsulates all of these elements that we were talking about today so beautifully and wonderfully in your work, which comes to us with just like such pure love uh, and an open heart and wanting to, to bring those, those stories forth. But thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And the thing is like these talks, these conversations, this is like working. This is part of the process. It's talking it out and working Mm -hmm. it out in real time. It's, and so it's like on top of it being, this is what I figured out. And this is what I want to share. It's also, let's talk through this because I'm still trying to figure this out. You know, so thank you. Thank you so much. I am. Um, is there anything that you have coming up that we should be on the lookout for? Any projects that you're working on? I'm working with the San Jose Museum of Art um, and uh, Chopsticks Alley in the city of San Jose Office of Cultural Affairs mm-hmm. on a called Hidden Heritages, which was postponed and then postponed. <laughs> <laughs> But um, it's about like how Vietnamese, the Vietnamese community has um, like helped shape San Jose, the city of San Jose. So that's upcoming. And um, my events and things are on my site, um, trendmy.com. And then I have a show that's currently up um, at um, the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts Gallery 51. So it's like these three, it's my work and then Sanctuary City Projects um, and then the Hostile Terrain 94. And that's at, um, that's in North Adams, Massachusetts. We'll definitely keep up to work up to date with your website and to see all the latest projects, but it sounds like what you've got going on right now um, with San Jose Museum and Chopsticks Alley uh, over here in San Jose, as well as what you've got going on in Massachusetts should be really phenomenal projects. And hopefully we have some viewers who can check those out. Well, thank you again so much for all of your time, Trin. It has been it has been a wonderful conversation and so great talking to you. And like you said, this this was as much a uh, part of the artistic process for me, I'm sure, as it was for you. And I can't wait to see how your projects turn out and continue following you. Yeah, thank you so much, Juliana. Thanks for tuning in to Art in Motion. We hope you enjoyed part two of our conversation with Trin Mai. To catch all the latest from AIM, you can follow us on Instagram at Art in Motion Podcast. You can also email us any questions or feedback at artinmotionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, y'all. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>